There's an often repeated story that in the early 1930s, Clark Gable caused 75% of the t-shirt sales to vanish because he appeared on the silver screen without wearing one. Whether that stat was true or not, it has been passed along for years as an undeniable fact. If it's true, it tells us one thing about the power of image. If it's untrue, it tells us another thing about the influence of media. The fact that such facts often get passed along as fact is itself a point of concern about how ideas get developed and then how they can be used to sway public opinion. The mass media is a dangerous, easily manipulated, and manipulating force. It can be good, or it is not. Clark Gable may or may not have transformed the underwear industry by going shirtless, but Tom Cruise, Ray-Bans, in Risky Business did increase the sale of those sunglasses to 360000 in that one year alone. Advertising is built out of image, symbol, and manipulation of right brains the part of our brains which feel, respond to stimuli, and stir desire, not the part that thinks, reasons, and decides based on processed information. Advertising is a form of propaganda. It is the art of making us buy things we don't need with money we don't have in order to impress people we may not even like. And it works. We respond just on cue. Images and suggestions, even on the subliminal level, induce us to actions we may not have consciously chosen. That doesn't say much for the spirit of advertising, but it says a great deal about our lack of conscious engagement with our own inner selves in response to the world around us. But it is even more pernicious than just manipulating our financial purchases. The intrusion of images and symbols depending on their handler's purpose, can alter our very thought patterns and insert progressively active idols into our inner drives that eventually alter our behavior, and behavior determines character, and character determines destiny. Now, there's an insufferable denial of this reality. In the days after the horror of the Columbine Massacre, Moments after giving out awards to rock musicians whose lyrics were so clearly connected to the spirit of the murder of our children that only a complete imbecile would not see the direct influence, the then president of the Recording Academy, Michael Green, stated that, quote, rock music is a great deterrent to teen violence, but it's never the cause of it, end quote. This would be laughable if it were not so blatantly hypocritical. But it's worse than hypocritical. It's insane. I'm not using the word insane as a mere pejorative slam. I'm using it with precise intent. Green was speaking as a mentally ill man to a mentally ill audience who fully agreed with him. These are the same people who see spending millions for a 30-second commercial spot on the Super Bowl because they know it will generate multi-millions by influencing the public to buy their products, but then claim, without the least sense of irony, that focused hours of body chemistry-altering musical hypnotics carrying lyrics that command and celebrate the destruction of human life has no influence on behavior. Author and researcher Jerry Mander says, quote, Fifteen years I worked as a public relations and advertising executive, 
During that time, I learned that it is possible to speak through media directly into people's heads and then, like some otherworldly magician, leave images inside that can cause people to do what they might otherwise never have thought to do. At first, I was amused, then dazzled. It worked, but I came to the conclusion that like other modern technologies which now surround our lives, advertising, television, and most mass media predetermine their own effect so that in the end, I became horrified by them as I observed the aberrations which they inevitably create in the world." End quote. He then describes how after years of serving the mass media monster, he began to sense a deep, empty, hollow place inside himself. He describes how standing on a cruise ship passing through what should have been spectacular views, he could no longer even see them. They stopped at his eyes, he says. They could no longer enter into him and fill him with the awe and wonder he recalled from younger years. He recalled a saying which had become popular among his peers that, quote, nature is boring. He became terrified then at the realization that there was nothing wrong with nature. It wasn't nature that was boring. It was he who had lost the ability to engage with real things. Nature became irrelevant to me, absent from my life. Through mere lack of exposure and practice, I'd lost the ability to feel it, tune into it, or care about it. Life moved too fast for that now. We're gathered here to ask God's help and to learn from each other about how best to exercise the gifts of art. I would think it is our goal, through whatever art forms we are engaged, to bring light into darkness, hope into heartache wisdom into foolishness, and love into isolation. Art is said to justify its existence by simply being itself, art for art's sake. And that's a valid point if we live in a time of peace and leisure in which the ongoing creation of new forms of artistic expression are free from the intrusion of gross evil. And as much as we would love to engage in art for art's sake, as an extension of our leisurely creative energies, there is more at stake now. We will never heal the insanity I just referred to by sheer argument alone. Ancient philosophers and the fathers of early civilization understood the force of art, story, and music as having the power to either enhance or destroy civilization. Some artists who considered themselves above the status quo who believed themselves to be in tune with higher powers of freedom and creativity, most often expressed only chaos rather than emerging new visions of life. Their offering generated rebellion rather than real freedom, anarchy more than art, and destruction of soul rather than distinction of spirit. Still, the idea of the poetic or the artistic shaman who is in touch with near-supernatural powers of insight reemerges at certain stages through history, and never more so than the era beginning at the end of World War II and reaching its zenith in the 1960s. That much in tradition needed to be rebuked and rejected cannot be denied. Misogyny, racism, and a mindless acceptance of political white Anglo-Saxon Protestant good old boyism deserved all the rejection it got 
But the pure rebel of the 1960s was mostly full of sound and fury, but signifying nothing valid by which to replace the hypocrisy they railed against. Soon it shed its angry anti-war uniforms and changed into bell-bottoms, leaving behind the burning streets for the steamy disco. We went from the raging rebellious to the merely bizarre, then to the insipid, the effeminate, and a vapidness in less than one decade. What changed in all this seemingly huge transformation was a loss of innocence, some said. The shallow happy days, spelled with a Z, of the Eisenhower era where boy meets girl and all is right with the world, the Western world, that is, was snapped into austere reality by the sounds of gunfire on Dealey Plaza, and then more gunfire from Vietnam, more assassinations, riots, and angry streets finally burned the decade out with an exhausted collapse in a cow pasture. We called it the summer of love. But what remained was a huge canyon of existential emptiness at the core of the national soul. With no answers, the sound and fury gave way to a self-indulgent silliness called the 70s. Now, it's always treacherously inaccurate to study culture by the decade, but it gives us an index to try to wrestle with subjects that are far too large to be contained even by decadeology. By the late 1970s, the emerging political prophetic voice had been crowded out by an ever-increasing number of other voices, postmodern, Gnostic, New Age. The transformation of culture begun in the 1960s uncoupled music and art from all tradition, rejected all previous conformity, and opened the floodgates for everything. By the 80s, art took on a more conventional center again, with all sorts of various dancing weirdness circling around it. Now and then a real voice would interrupt the parade of mediocrity, but the era of singular, distinct art forms slicing through the fabric of shallow culture drowned in the rising tide of everything-ism so that by the beginning of the new millennium we are facing a sea of forms of every variation. The internet, like the river Ganges, carried all the human mind and heart could imagine with the demonic and sometimes the angelic mixed in. Electronics is now replacing human interaction. The instant communications era is resulting in the loneliest culture in history and the ability to relate is even now being erased from the emerging youngest among us on the brain formation level itself, as gadgets rewire unformed pre-adolescent brains to respond to and even bond with the electronic rather than the human. If there is to be an answer to the unanswered cries that have been taking different forms since the end of the last world war, it will not rise from out of culture. It must enter into it from a greater source. We must manifest a living, loving power which can overcome the darkness, reawaken the true human, re-engage the heart, and break demonic chains. We, in ourselves, do not have the power to do it. Trying to win a debate between left brains using didactic arguments, no matter how obvious the facts of our position may be, doesn't work. 
The good of reason has been nearly completely driven from the mass mind. There's no room left for debate in the public square. Where truth is heard, it's rejected, but it is becoming nearly impossible for truth to even gain a hearing. Truth used to be wrestled with, and even if it was resisted, it was done so by opponents via reasoned polemic dialogue. Now truth is not even discernible by them. Once the good of reason is lost in a culture, how can that culture be reached? How do we reach the mind again? Not primarily with argument, although the foolishness of preaching will never become passé. It is God's instrument for the preaching of the gospel. But when it comes to cultural polemics and apologetics, we may seem to think that the best thing to do is fight fire with fire, that we should just keep countering irrationality with rationale. But it seems that the reason our rationale rarely wins and their argumentless argument seems to win so often is that they have won the hearts of their audience via the arts. When the prophets of Judah reached the same condition in their history, that of a rotted-out core surrounded by a shallow, empty cultural form in which no one could even hear truth anymore, while still going through outward religious forms and cultural mores, all for show, they preached. But they also did other things. Ezekiel put on a street show. Isaiah walked around in his underwear, and Jeremiah performed certain dramatic acts. They went for the visual, the heart, the right brain, the imaginative. There's a danger in trying to fight back by producing opposition art forms. They make ugly rock and roll, we make godly rock and roll. They make ugly movies, we make nice movies. They make... Oh, wait a minute. What's wrong with this picture? Well, who's doing the initiating and who's doing the following? We should be the initiators, not the copycats. Of course, there are certain aspects of every art form that are simply human. We all develop certain styles from those we admire along the way, regardless of their personal belief system. So some copying is inevitable, but for sons and daughters of the kingdom of heaven, there must be a place of union with Christ where we initiate a unique and life-affirming art form that sets the pace that the world would want to follow. The special anointing of creative workmanship manifested in Exodus chapter 31, verses 1 through 6, describes certain individuals in Israel who were endowed with, quote, wisdom, understanding, and skill in all forms of artistic workmanship in the building and equipping of the tabernacle of Moses. But this surely was not a one-time event only for the tabernacle. It was a prototype of how God desires to interact with his children in the ongoing manifestation of his kingdom on earth. With all due respect to the goodness of past art forms, which we should never dishonor or discredit, and which we should always learn from, there's an entire world to be reached. God didn't stop creative anointing with the establishment of choirs and cathedrals and stained glass windows. It's been rightly said that the names of denominations have become tombstones placed over the graves of past moves of God. That may be too harsh and too narrow, but we must wrestle with the reality that it is usually religious legalism that has hamstrung and straitjacketed new expressions. 
The cliche but sadly true fact is that the last words of a dead church often have been, we've never done it that way before. The Holy Spirit longs to help us again to transcend the spirit of the world. It's already happening in places. Anytime there's a surge of spirit, there is a hidden debris that gets washed up on the shore. That debris is not caused by the surging wave of the spirit, but revealed by it. Every new move of the Holy Spirit historically has its mixture. Again, not caused by the Spirit, but by what the Spirit reveals in the heart, both good and bad. It takes time, patience, discernment, truth, and most of all, love, to help each other sort out what is truly a gift from God and what is less than that, and in some cases, what is even a darker, even demonic counterfeit. It is our purity of heart towards the Lord that purifies our worship. Worship is the same word in Hebrew as service and is related to liturgy, which is related to art forms. The more we worship purely, the clearer our agenda will become and the purer our art will be. We will address this more in our final session. When the God of Abraham revealed himself to Israel, it was not in an image. It was in the Word. No image of any likeness of anything in heaven above, earth below, or the waters under the earth was to be incorporated as representing the divine. This was not because image itself is evil, but because it's less than capable of bearing the full image of the invisible God and would therefore misrepresent him. Also, it's not the lack of power of images to grasp the soul that make it forbidden as a means of presenting the living God, but on the contrary, it was its huge but secondary power to grasp, sway, seduce, that again made it unacceptable as a vehicle of the divine image. Couple its secondary place with its seducing power, and you have the perfect combination for the establishing of a less-than-God with a godlike seductive ability the beginning of idol worship. Mankind has proven that formula throughout our history. Image and symbol are safe only if they are secondary, only if they are sublimated under an understanding of the invisible real, the transcendent holy. As long as Israel understood the cherubim embroidered on the curtains of the tabernacle did not represent the immortal, invisible, only wise God, but only provided the means to begin an understanding of a far greater reality beyond the ark, then they could serve as proper symbols of secondary real things. Go past the curtain into the holiest of all, and the symbol of the Ark of the Covenant provided a time location for the eternal and for the omnipresent to fill a certain space. But no one ever confused the symbol for the reality. The symbol was a mere vehicle for that reality. Symbols and images bind up reality for us and give us a means of interacting with that which they point to, which we could never reach any other way. So the great gift of symbol and image can become a great danger if the reality it points to is supplemented by the symbol itself then you have an idol. There's another power in the universe that's not eternal, 
not omnipotent and totally antagonistic to all goodness. This power seeks always to make itself into another god, little g. The fact that a beginning god who has to make himself into a god is by the very fact no god at all escapes him. But that's another story for another time. For now, we need to grasp that in his desire to create an alternate universe ruled by force rather than love, this other power gladly takes up residence in the second heaven and from there seeks to establish himself in the hearts and minds of humans where the real God alone should dwell. He seeks this usurped false throne via the imagination and he accesses the imagination which was meant to receive revelation from the invisible real and turns it into a receiver for images, earthly, soulish, and finally demonic. If he can make secondary things primary, he not only destroys the good of the primary, but makes the secondary into an alternate religion. Then for a while he can play God in his temporary, deformed, hellish second heaven. And to whatever extent he can seduce mankind into cooperating with his false agenda, making the secondary primary while hating and teaching mankind to ignore the very existence of the true primary, for a time he is the god of this world. But why is there a this world for him to play little god over? Why is there a second heaven in which the outlaw spirit of the universe can experiment with alternate realities that contradict the third heaven? What was God after in not only allowing it, but initially creating it? Not the evil, but the place where the evil kingdom finally was set up by Satan. This is a subject for much more far-reaching study than we can attempt here, but for our present purpose, that of understanding the power and nature of image and symbol in the arts and their effect on our very brain and soul, we need to attempt a partial answer as it relates to our subject. God has ordained the physical creation as an eventual dwelling place for himself with a redeemed people who have been his partners, his family, in the ultimate overthrow of evil out of the universe forever. It's my thesis that God created the physical order for the ultimate purpose of laying a trap for evil, where evil will be destroyed not by force, but by love, thus securing love as the ultimate power, while at the same time destroying its enemy, evil. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Paul says, To me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in the heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. To unpack this even partially would take us in an entirely new level of study beyond this one. But to summarize, Paul is saying that God graced him in his weakness to communicate to Jew and Gentile the truth of the eternal purpose in Christ. That through this truth, 
the evil rulers of the universe will be ultimately rebuked by the many-sided wisdom of God that is manifested in his people, the church. Self-denial in suffering for righteousness is a cosmic deal-breaker against principalities and powers, overthrowing their evil, not by power, but by love. All true art is a loving affirmation of the created order, a celebration of its author. All the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy, Job tells us. Only the lover sings or writes or acts or sculpts. If this is true, and it is, then only the hater produces nihilism. A study of the past five decades of our history is impossible apart from an understanding of the rise of nihilistic, destructive art forms. It's not too strong to say that the arts formed the decades far more than the decades formed the arts. The battle for the soul of the universe has played out in the arts, and now more than ever is that so. To fail to understand the nature of this battle does not hinder the lover. He or she will still sing or create or give expression, for love does not need a battle to fight to celebrate being. Still, when at war, it's best to know our enemy and to recognize his attempts to not only openly destroy, but subtly infiltrate, subtly adulterate, and ultimately annihilate little by little. For a materialist to analyze a sign on the side of the road down to its component parts, so much metal, plastic, and paint, such analysis does not negate the message written on the sign, nor the maker of both the sign and its message. Great intellect is not required to reject the foolish idea that if we are able to understand the brain's parts and function, that somehow that negates transcendence, disproves the brain's message and its maker. In the past 20 years, more has been learned about the human brain than has been understood since the first ancient anatomy class. Understanding how the brain works not only does not in any way negate its spiritual aspects, but only serves to strengthen them. We know, for instance, that the right hemisphere of the brain is designed to deal in metaphysical invisible intangibles. It responds to images and all the transcendent ripples of unseen reality emanating from the core of those symbols. No one has ever fully seen anything. We see in part. But we have been given this gift of the way of the heart that knows beyond mere static facts. The heart's ways of knowing communicate on a higher level, higher shades of meaning that reach far beyond empirical information. How is it that the physical brain clearly has mechanisms in its structure which deal with the non-material? According to Christian revelation, the physical world is the cosmic battlefield on which is being hammered out the final destiny of the universe. We make a huge error when we assume too much of a distinction between the physical and the spiritual. Years ago, I was speaking at a conference where I made a passing remark about how we might determine at what point our technology will pass from physics into metaphysics. At the break, a man approached me who introduced himself as a Ph.D. in electronics. He said, in response to your passing question a moment ago, I can tell you for a fact, we know what electricity does, but we do not know what it is. 
We are already in the realm of metaphysics just by turning on a light or hooking up a computer. That conversation was well over 20 years ago. So where are we now? The streams of progress seem to be surging towards some kind of omega point where the physical and the metaphysical will finally, ultimately, and decisively collide. What that will look like is anybody's guess. It may be the moment when the curtain of the heavens rolls back as a scroll as the physical and the metaphysical move beyond their current division. The invisible becomes visible. The play will be over because the author has walked on stage. We'll see. So then we have to deal with the ever-increasing levels of warfare for the souls of people. And the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down evil reasonings and wicked imaginations and every high thing that would exalt itself against the knowledge of God. One arena, possibly the greatest arena of this warfare, is in that of the arts, and now related to the arts through electronics and computerization. We're here today in a council of war. As children of the light and children of the day, we, of all people, should be accessing images and symbols which fully lend themselves to the celebration of life and of its author. That doesn't mean all art is happy or joyful, but it leads to a joyful end. Whether it's music, story, dance, or some other form, all art that is true art will be life-enhancing and lead to ultimate truth. Anything less will be either a mere projection of the faltering human soul, or worse, a demonic shadow of soul-destroying lies. When Alexander Solzhenitsyn was lying on his back on rotted straw, staring at the one small window of his prison cell, the cell where he had been abandoned after having been betrayed by his communist comrades, he was dying not only of several life-destroying physical diseases, but of the greater disease of despair. But as he noticed in the sky above him a shaft of light bursting through an otherwise bleak gray sky, he thought of the great philosophical trinity of goodness, truth, and beauty. And he asked himself this question. When truth is rejected, when goodness has all but disappeared from society, and there is no one who speaks truth or stands for that which is good. What if the only power left of that great triumvirate, beauty, finds a way to rise up, wrap itself around the other two, and somehow in itself do the work of all three? Beauty can be seductive, a tool of evil in some settings. Satan comes as an angel of light. But what if God might use beauty in the absence of goodness and truth. That's exactly what happened in Solzhenitsyn's heart that very day. A friend of ours who lives in Southern California was making his way up the California coast when he happened to pass a beautiful Japanese garden. Its beauty was so compelling he had to stop. He walked further up into it and finally just lay down on the ground to soak up the goodness of it all just as he was beginning to slightly doze, he was shaken from his repose by the sound of an approaching thump, thump, thump. The jarring bass guitar noise stopped only to be replaced by the sound of a car engine, which was then turned off. Car doors opened and closed, and voices. 
He froze. His apprehension grew to fear as he became aware of at least one person and maybe more approaching his vicinity. Fearing he was about to be attacked, he finally turned to view his potential assailant. He then realized he was not at all the focus of anyone's attention. A young gangbanger, now standing only a few feet from him, was not looking his way at all. He stood with his hands open and slightly raised. His head back and his eyes dancing, he looked around him at the same breathtaking beauty that had caused my friend to stop. Then he heard the boy say in a voice of sheer awe and wonder, This makes me want to live. But we're going blind, according to philosopher Joseph Pieper. He said in 1988, man's ability to see is in decline. Those who nowadays concern themselves with culture and education will experience this fact again and again. Blindness regarding spiritual capacity to perceive the invisible reality as it truly is. To be sure, no human being has ever really seen everything that lies visibly in front of his eyes. The world, including its tangible side, is unfathomable. And yet, there are degrees of perception. Going below a certain bottom line, quite obviously, will endanger the integrity of man as a spiritual being. It seems that nowadays we have arrived at this bottom line. What would Pieper say today, nearly 30 years later, and a thousand times more reason to heed his warning? I hear the same defenses for the undiscerning embrace of whatever technology that comes just as Pieper did 30 years ago. It's just a fact of technological progress. Yes, we may be losing some senses, but we gain so much in the process. That fact cannot be denied, but only at the expense of other facts just as undeniable. Pieper was right when he said there is such a thing as visual noise pollution, which, just like the acoustical counterpart, makes clear perception impossible. One might perhaps presume that TV watchers or tabloid readers and moviegoers exercise sharper eyes. But the opposite is true. The ancient sages knew exactly why they called the concupiscence of the eyes a destroyer. The restoration of man's inner eyes can hardly be expected in this day and age unless, first of all, we are willing and determined simply to exclude from one's realm of life all those inane and contrived but titillating illusions incessantly generated by the entertainment industry. Let me repeat, I'm quoting Piper here, in this obviously continuing process there exists a limit below which human nature itself is threatened and the very integrity of human existence is directly endangered. Therefore, such ultimate danger can no longer be averted with technology alone. At stake here is this. How can man be saved from becoming a totally passive consumer of mass-produced goods and subservient followers beholding to every slogan the advertiser may claim? Modern technology advanced in such tiny increments, says Jerry Mander, for so long 
that we never realize how much our world was being altered or the ultimate direction of the process. But now the speed is accelerating logarithmically. It's apparent that developing a language and set of standards by which to assess technological impact and to block it where necessary is a crucial survival skill of our time. If we're going to be valid contenders on the battlefield of our times, we cannot be subjectively drowning in the enemy's poison. Yes, we need to know our enemy, but that requires an objectivity that can only come from discernment, and discernment can only come from exposure to the real and the true. We do not become effective against that which we are subjectively inebriated by. Dr. Alan Bloom, in his much-hated-by-the-left book, The Closing of the American Mind, referred to the cultural rot in his Ivy League college students. He observed that it seemed to be that society's greatest madness seems most normal to itself. When we follow the same muse as the world, we seek to enlighten the light in us becomes darkness. The sad fact has been that much mediocrity in art produced by an insipid religious culture is so out of touch with the world that nothing it says is of either relevance or interest. The painful fact of embarrassingly bad religious art is frustrating, but not necessarily fatal. Or, if fatal, it's not as fatal as our trying so hard to be liked by the world that we become the world and end up only reaching them with a message we took from them. The key here is that we do not need to be trying to reach them when it comes to art. In evangelism, yes. In Bible teaching, yes. But with art, with some covert message that we're trying to secretly sneak in, we end up failing. The art form should contain the force of life, which is its own message and will obtain its own audience if it is life-giving. As C.S. Lewis stated, we don't need another Christian book. We need Christians who write good books. In other words, we don't need a Christian film or a Christian ballet company or a Christian movie scriptwriter. We need Christians to write great books, tell engaging stories, and perform excellent ballet without always seeking to find some way to preach a sermon to the left brain. It actually comes across not only as bad art, but it strikes the listener as dishonest. They feel manipulated. You asked me to come see this film or whatever, and I ended up having to sit through a sermon. Our non-believing, manipulated by the well-meaning Christian friend may say. Now, we thank God for great sermons, and maybe God will, in his mercy and grace, even use bad Christian art sometimes to still bless and reach people But thankfully, we don't have to just settle for divine intervention to rescue both us and our victims from a bad job. Think of this. 1 Peter 3, verse 15 tells us that we are to be ready to give answer to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is within us and to do so with gentleness and respect. This verse is often adjusted to imply that we are to preach to everyone we encounter and always be ready to do apologetics battles with them. That's not really what Peter is saying here. He said, if they ask, be ready to tell them. Now, of course, there's a time and place for great preaching and for witnessing 
and having conversations and for engaging people in strong apologetics. But if we look closely at this statement, Peter begins by saying that we are to revere the Lord Jesus in our hearts at all times. In other words, to live in such union with him that it manifests in all our life and actions. Peter then says this will cause people to want to understand why we are people of hope. And they will ask. And when they ask, we will then be able to tell them. Apologia can mean either a defense or to give an answer. Again, this does not negate the place of power evangelism or bold one-on-one witnessing. But we need to let the verse say what it says. That great art is not a replacement for preaching or for apologetics is obvious. But neither is didactic left-brain information sharing not a replacement for winsome, joyful, and well-crafted expressions of the beautiful, the good, and the true in indirect symbolic forms. This has been missing in the life of the church, and therefore in the culture, with only a few good exceptions. To manifest life and love that would cause non-believers to ask for the reason behind our life and love implies that the message at first is not direct. Have you ever sat through a Christian film that was so preachy it would have obviously been more effective to have just gone ahead and offered a sermon? It would have been more reasonable, less manipulative, and come across maybe in a more attractive form. But by mixing the two and not doing either very well, you end up with bad sermonizing carried by an even worse art form. Regarding creativity, storytelling, music, and the arts, the most important element of all of this is the indirectness of the medium that reaches the right brain, i.e. the heart. Our good friend Michael Kelly Blanchard is a gifted musician, author, and poet. His songs tell stories that even the hardest heart would be moved by, and his lyrics are often so filled with layers of meaning that it takes some thoughtful effort to dig out all the treasure in each line. It's no different than the Bible itself, which tells us in Proverbs 25, verse 2, that it's the glory of God to conceal a matter and the glory of kings to seek it out. But after performing at a Christian university, Michael was approached by a local minister who said to him, I really love your music and we might be interested in having you come play at our program. But if you don't mind my asking a direct question, are you born again? And all the two hours of Michael's performance, which painted picture after picture of the redeeming power of Jesus with clear allusions to the blood, the cross, and the power of God's grace to redeem broken lives, it was just too obtuse for this pastor. See, Michael never used the right catchphrases. Now, gifted evangelists and personality types who tend to be more left brain in their evaluation of what is vitally important usually place the arts over in a category of non-essentials, even in peacetime, but a total feckless waste of time in wartime. A few minutes back, I stated that we are certainly in a state of war in this present culture, and not merely a culture war, but an increasingly intense war for every aspect of life. Surely a thinking person lays aside any exercise in frivolity, such as his or her art form, 
in order to apply all resources to the more valid task. What might that task be? Well, to the left brain critic of the arts, it would be whatever they determine to be important. But the history of warfare repeatedly confirms the powerful role image and symbols play, as well as the strengthening of morale brought about via various art forms. From martial music to Churchillian speeches, from colorful imagery to heart-moving drama, the actual fighting on the front lines has a strong backstory line that produces the impetus for the front-line battle. Without the back, there's no front. It is the song, the speech, the story, the symbol, the march that provides the engine that drives the fighter onward toward the actual engagement of the battle. In a message given by C.S. Lewis in 1939 at the outset of World War II, Lewis addresses Oxford students who are concerned that their focus on their studies might be seen by the church as a foolish waste of time in the face of war. After all, in the face of such evil, the only thing that should matter is the saving of souls, the church might say. Others were equally concerned about how the soldier or the politician might view them. After all, in the face of such national danger, the only thing that should occupy you is the war. Lewis answers, quote, It's important to try to see the present calamity in a true perspective. The war creates no absolutely new situation. It simply aggravates the permanent human situation so that we no longer can ignore it. Human life has always been lived on the edge of a precipice. Human culture has always had to exist under the shadow of something infinitely more important than itself. If men had postponed the search for knowledge and beauty until they were more secure, the search would never have begun. We are mistaken when we compare war with normal life. Life has never been normal. He explains that no earthly event, demand, or crisis has the power to hold the human soul at full attention 24-7 simply because, no matter how huge such earthly events may appear, they are still only finite. And nothing finite is worthy of total human attention. That place belongs only to God. Art in wartime or not is a normal occupation of the human soul because unless it is poisoned with egotism or deformed by the demonic, it has the capacity to communicate and carry the eternal into the temporal. Crisis may interrupt our art at its initial loud entrance, but sooner or later the transcendent in us will only rise again but will also have to rise again to give an answer to the call of the new crisis. I paraphrase Lewis here when he said, good philosophy must exist because, if for no other reason, to answer bad philosophy. Good art must exist if for no other reason because bad art must be answered. In a time of war, whether culture war or full-scale war, it is the duty of those of us who are given to our art to labor in our field, not only because it is the truly human thing to do, war or not, but as a means of fighting the war for the good to stop the flow of the evil. For those of us here who are repeatedly burdened with feelings that we are wasting valuable time and resources, on useless drivel while truly worthwhile endeavors are going on without us, 
Then we have to discern whether we are suffering from some devilish lie that's attacking us to seek to hinder our true calling, or if we are suffering some wound to our ego because we are not getting the positive attention we had hoped for. This will need to be examined more in a later session when we look at why we do whatever it is we do. But the bottom line for now is this. The human being made in the image of God will never cease to give form to the invisible transcendent. He created us to do that. Crises will not shut down the fact of our nature. It will only enhance it and even require it to greater degrees in the face of conflict. Even in seemingly peacetimes, in which leisure provides for a more focused attention to art, there's still the ongoing culture war that continues in such so-called peaceful times. The enemy of God and man for only a little while longer is the God of this world. The heart of man is the battleground between light and dark, He tries to seduce in peacetime when he cannot openly attack. We're facing both kinds of battles now, more than at any time in history. So let's put aside any fear that we are wasting time, as well as any self-pity that we are not going to get our egos stroked. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It takes informed minds of strong left brain training as well as worshipful sentiments of right brain sensitivity to engage this battle for the minds and sentiments of a seduced culture. It takes an intimate and worshipful private life of devotion to Christ if we are going to be able to produce a public art form capable of capturing and reawakening the hearts and minds of our audience. If we hope they like us, we fail. If we hope they like our art, we fail. If we hope they get our message, we still fail. But if we become so pregnant with the invisible real that we are caught up in its vision, so much so that when we give birth, we are as moved toward the good, the true, and the beautiful as we hope our audience will be then we succeed. If we worship and we long to point to the good that we have been shown and our desire is to help others see with the same eyes that we've been given to see, hear with the same ears we've been given to hear, be moved in the same way that we were moved, not so they will clap for us, but so we will all be able to stand shoulder to shoulder focusing on the invisible, holy, true, good thing that we've been shown. When we're satisfied to just be a messenger boy or a messenger girl and our reward is the fulfillment of seeing the wonder in the eyes of our audience, not at us, but at what has passed through us to the glory of God, We will succeed, God helping us.